Hello and welcome to another episode of 10 Podcast Lane. In this episode, we cover the gruesome legend of Jack the Ripper. Whitechapel, in 1888, was CD by any standards. It was a crime-ridden area of adverse poverty on the doorstep of London's East End. With a population of around 78,000 people, and an influx of Jewish, Irish and Russians, leading it to mainly be known as the Immigrant District. The slums and poverty were so bad that malnutrition and disease were commonplace. It was a toss of the coin if people born there would actually even live past the age of five due to these appalling conditions. Whitechapel was full of lanes, doorways and courtyards, weaving in and out of each other all lit at night by a single dull gas lamp. This meant that crime was absolutely rampant in this part of the city. Robbery was commonplace and murder, murder was most common, especially from August 31st to November 9th in 1888, when a killer who had become famously known as Jack the Ripper left a trail of fear, death and dismemberment behind him without ever being caught. What did Jack the Ripper do, someone may ask, if they've lived under a rock their whole life? Well, he is famously known for the brutal murder of five prostitutes, who are known as the five canonical victims. However, there were a total of 11 murders in Whitechapel from 1888 to 1891, known as the Whitechapel Murders. Before we get to the five canonical victims, let's give an honourable mention to some of the other attacks that were linked to Jack the Ripper as possible victims. Annie Millwood, Ada Wilson and Martha Tabram were all attacked by a man whom is described as standing five foot six with fair hair and a moustache. Annie Millwood was attacked on February 25th, 1888 Whilst walking home, a man happened upon her, brandishing a clasp knife, and stabbed her in the legs. She survived the attack, but later died, although it's stated not due to her wounds. Ada Wilson was then attacked on the 28th of March. Having heard a knock on the door, she opened it to find a man standing there. He barged into the room and threatened her, as he pulled out, again, a clasp knife. Ada screamed alerting the neighbours upstairs to come down and see what was happening. The attacker then fled as the neighbour, Rose Beerman, entered the room. And finally, we come to Martha Tabram, who was actually murdered on the 7th of August, 1888. She was found on the landing of her flat, stabbed 39 times, including 9 times in her neck and numerous stab wounds to her lungs and chest. Again, many do not consider these as ripper victims, and they are not part of the canonical five. But I personally do think there's a high possibility that these were the first Ripper victims. It's rare that a killer will just outright start butchering people. There is usually an escalation to their actions. So for me, it would make perfect sense that Annie and Ada's attacker was the Ripper, getting his feet wet, but failing to kill, before finally murdering Martha on the 7th of August, and before perfecting his skill with the five victims he has become synonymous for. 
So who are these five women he is famous for killing, I hear you ask? Well, let me introduce you to the poor souls that met the Ripper's Blade. Marianne Nichols, 31st of the 8th, 1888, the first victim. It was around 3.40am the 31st of August in 1888. Charles Cross, a local carter, was making his way to work walking through an area called Bucks Row. It was a cobbled street in Whitechapel, narrow, damp and very dimly lit, only for the sparse streetlights and the crescent moon that sat above giving off an eerie glow. As he came parallel to the boarding school, which constitutes most of Bucks Row, his eye happened upon what looked like a long bundle lying on the ground, half inside a gateway to his left. Through sleepy eyes and the dull street lighting, he moved closer, thinking it was a tarpaulin material he might make use from, or maybe even make money from selling. As he got closer though, he seen it was something different. Turning quickly, he heard footsteps behind him. It was another carter whom Charles knew, a man named Robert Paul. Charles called him to come and witness what he was looking at. Before them lay a woman lying on her back, skirt pulled up over her waist, motionless. At first, Cross thought she might have been unconscious, drunk, or having had an accident. As Charles was soon to find out, this was not the case. He lowered the lady's skirt and ran to summon a policeman while Robert waited beside the motionless body. He encountered PC Jonas Mitten and informed him, I found a woman. She looks to me to be either dead or drunk, but for my part, I believe she's dead. As they both ran, returning to the body, they met PC John Neal and PC Tane. The three policemen looked over the body, with only PC Neal's lantern lighting the corpse with a dull yellow glow. They knew now she was dead, and fetched Dr. Henry Llewellyn to confirm what they already knew. The body was that of Mary Ann Nichols, or Polly as she was known, aged 43. She would forever be known as the first confirmed victim of Jack the Ripper. Her throat had been slit, although that not being the cause of death, which was confirmed by the doctor to have been caused by asphyxiation. Her tongue was sliced and five teeth were also removed. Her cheek was bruised, either from blunt force trauma or a heavy hand and thumb holding the face down. Further down, below the abdomen, she was covered in deep lacerations that cut right through the tissue in a violent downward motion, all inflicted post-mortem, with deep bruised wounds all along the stomach. All the cuts were done from left to right, meaning this may have been done by a left-handed person. There were three workers doing a night shift in Winthrop Street horse slaughterers, but all three seen nor heard anything. Another man working nearby, Patrick Mulshaw, a night watchman at the local sewer works, was doing his normal duties between 3 and 4 a.m. when a passerby advised him, Watchman, I believe somebody has been murdered down the street. This was at around 3.40 a.m., before anyone was alerted to the murder. P. 
police were unsuccessful in tracking down this mysterious man who told Mr. Moldshaw the fateful news. Was this the Ripper? Annie Chapman, 8th of the 9th, 1888, the second victim. The morning fog was thick in the air as Elizabeth Long, also known to the locals as Miss Durrell, was walking along Hanbury Street at around 5.30am. As she passed by the tall fence at the back of number 29, she noticed a man and a woman, which in this area was not uncommon, as prostitutes with their clients frequented this lane, much to the anger of the 17 residents of number 29. She heard the man saying, Will you? Followed by the woman replying, Yes. Confirming what she thought about the woman of the night entertaining her client. Due to this, Mr. L did not notice much else other than the words spoken and the man who had his back to her was wearing a long black cloak and a deer hunter hat similar to Sherlock Holmes' famous hat. This would be the last time Annie Chapman, known as Dark Annie, would be seen alive. 30 minutes later, at 6am, John Davis, who was one of the 17 residents in number 29 Hanbury Street, was leaving the house to go to work. He went out the back door of the building, slowly walking down the three stone steps into the backyard. Horrified, he was greeted by the mutilated body of Annie Chapman. The body lay between the steps and the neighbouring fence, and like Marianne Nichols, her skirt was raised above her abdomen. John did not even take a second look, instead running back into the house and out the front door, screaming for help, eventually flagging down Inspector John Chandler of H Division on Commercial Street. All John could say to the inspector was, Another, another woman has been murdered. And he was right. This was the second victim of the Whitechapel murderer, Jack the Ripper. This was different though, an escalation in the crime. Again, her throat was slit, left to right, same as before. The same knife was used to cut open her abdomen, left gaping open. Chapman's intestines, although still connected to her, were removed and placed over her right shoulder. And in a horrific turn, her uterus was removed, as well as, let's just say, some of her other parts. The cause of death, as written by Dr. George Baxter, during the post-mortem was again asphyxiation and not the throat being slit. This was the second canonical victim of Jack the Ripper. Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, 30th of the 9th, 1888, the third and fourth victims. It was around 12.55 a.m., on Sunday the 30th of September. Louis Deemschutz, a steward of the workers' club, was pulling into Dutfield Yard on his horse and cart. The night was dark, and in the yard at this time, nothing could be seen through the blackness of night. Upon entering the yard, the horse planted its feet and refused to go further into the yard. Frustrated, Louis pulled his cigarettes and matches out of his pocket. He placed the cigarette between his lips and struck the match to light it up. 
before he covered the naked flame with his hands to shield it from the wind, he noticed something on the ground in front of the horse, just beside the wall of the club. He dismounted the carriage. As he walked over, he struck two more matches to illuminate the area, when he realised it was a dead body that was in front of him. A chill ran up him as the hair stood up on his neck. He ran from the yard and into the workman's club and described the feeling in him that the killer was still in the yard, eyes piercing him as he ran. As he passed through the club, he was shouting, Murder! Police! Exiting the club, he arrived at Fairclough Street, eventually grabbing the attention of PC Spooner, who accompanied him back to the yard. As they arrived, there were 13 or 14 people crowded around the body. PC Spooner stooped down to investigate the corpse, and upon tilting the woman's head back, noticed there was a deep, fresh cut slit into her neck. Blood was still wet, running from the wound, indicating the woman could not have been dead more than 15 or 20 minutes, putting the time she was killed to be around 12.40am. However, Strangely enough, this was the only injury to the body. What this seemed to point to was Louis, upon entering the yard, had interrupted the ripper in the middle of his vile ritual, but still arriving too late to save poor Elizabeth Stride, the third victim of Saucy Jack. At roughly the same time, a drunk and slowly sobering Catherine Eddowes was being released from the local police station having been arrested the night before for impersonating a fire engine and then, mid-bow at the finale, dropped into a slumber on the ground. As she left the station, she normally would have went right, as this would have been the shortest route for her going home. But instead, she turned left, not knowing that this decision to take a different route would ultimately lead to her death. She was last seen at around 1.35am by three Jewish men on their way home, one taking note, and though it being a badly lit area, that she was talking to a man resembling a sailor, a mitre square. The man was described as 5 foot 6 inches or 5 foot 9, fair hair and having a moustache. Does this sound familiar? It's the same description of the attacker of the three women attacked in February through August. 30 minutes after this sighting, one P.C. Watkins, whilst walking his beat, turned a corner onto Mitre Square, and to his horror, found the mutilated body of Catherine Eddowes. The same as earlier that night, and the two previous victims, Eddowes' throat was slit, cutting right through the windpipe, which would have led to her bleeding to death within a minute or two, also leaving her unable to scream for help. She was disemboweled completely, with her insides again draped over her right shoulder. Her left kidney was removed, as well as a major part of her uterus. The kidney, later being sent in the post to the newspaper, with a letter reading, I sent you half the kidney I took, the other I preserved. I may send the bloody knife that took it out, if you wait a while longer. This night, the 30th of September, would be regarded famously as the double event where Jack claimed victims three and four. Also, noticeable as it was the first of the murders, that being Eddowes, 
not to be based in Whitechapel, albeit a few metres from there. Mary Jane Kelly, 9th of the 11th, 1888, the fifth victim. On Friday, 9th of November, Lord Mayor's Day, John McCarthy, a local landlord, instructed his assistant, a man named Thomas Bowyer, to go to 13 Miller's Court and get the rent off Mary Jane Kelly, whom was some six weeks behind on her payments and known to be a drunk and a violent one at that. This being why McCarthy sent Bowyer to do his dirty work, as he was an ex-soldier. Bowyer arrived at the dilapidated quarters and banged on the door. There was no answer, so again he banged on the door, louder this time, and calling for Miss Kelly to answer, exclaiming that he knew she was in there. Again he was greeted with silence, and the echo of the previous knock bouncing off the acoustics of the building walls. Moving to the window, he noticed a crack in it, with a jacket just inside, hanging up to make a makeshift curtain. Pulling it aside, he peered through and instantly gagged, putting his hand to his mouth to stop himself from vomiting at the sight that lay before him. Now, please take fair warning, this is a horror podcast, so this is going to get slightly, well, horrific. The body of Mary Jane Kelly lay naked on the bed, legs opened, head tilted to the left. Her abdomen and thighs were removed of skin and her abdominal cavity emptied. Her breasts were cut off, her arms dissected, and her face was mutilated beyond recognition. As if this wasn't enough, her uterus, kidneys, and one breast were under her head, the other breast placed beneath her right foot, and her liver between her feet, as if by design in some sadistic display. Her intestines were placed on the bedside table to her right, and her spleen neatly placed on the left-hand side of her body. Pools of blood saturated the bed linen and also had dripped into a pool covering about two feet of the floor. Every slash, hack and cut was made with a complete lack of any anatomical knowledge, the coroner revealing that the murderer would not even have the savvy of anatomy of a butcher. This would be mirrored by two other doctors after examining the bodies. Not a single trace of the killer could be found, even with the police canvassing the area as soon as they arrived at the scene. Then, as quickly as these horrendous killing sprees had begun, the murders just stopped. But why? So who was Jack the Ripper? the man responsible for terrorising the streets of Whitechapel over a three to four month period, maybe even longer. Although it is thought now that the Ripper did not have much, if any, medical knowledge, the police still looked into every possibility for suspects, from butchers and doctors to vets and medical students, especially any of those which may have had spent time in an asylum. But even with all the resources of the time, no leads or lines of inquiry came to anything. It's still a contemptuous point to this day. Did he or didn't he have anatomical knowledge? All in all, well over 2,000 people were interviewed in relation to the murders. Of this 2,000, 300 were actually investigated, with 80 of those being detained as possible suspects. 
let's look into some of the main suspects who were of particular interest to the police, journalists and the locals. I've whittled it down to my personal top five suspects. Aaron Kosminski was a Polish immigrant who was also a barber in Whitechapel at the time of the murders. It is said he was identified by two Jewish men near one of the crimes, but they refused to hand over a fellow Jew to the police. The nature of his job and the close proximity to the crimes and the assumption by some that it was a Polish immigrant that committed the murders led to Kosminski being a suspect. He was eventually sent to an insane asylum in 1891 where he died for threatening his sister with a knife. Sir Melville McNachton, who was assistant chief constable, wrote in 1894 that Kosminski was one of three suspects, but no forename was actually given to him at the time. It was only when researchers went through the asylum documents they could find one Kosminski, which was Aaron Kosminski. Skip forward to modern times, where a shawl was found in evidence that was said to be that of Catherine Eddowes' shawl. Guess what? There was blood and semen on the shawl. It was tested for over eight years, and in March 2019, it was written that the DNA matched Aaron Kosminski through DNA from his relatives. Not all believe this, but to me, it just seems like naysayers are the people who don't want to put a face to the killer. They want the legend to live on. Montague John Druitt was a 31-year-old barrister and teacher and was number two on Chief Constable McNaughton's list of suspects. This was mainly based on the facts that Druitt's own family, whom he grew up with, fully believed he was Jack the Ripper and also reported him. Also, coincidentally enough, at around the same time the murder stopped, Montague John Druid was found dead, lying bloated and face up in the Thames, by apparent suicide. Some may be quick to think that this was maybe guilt or remorse for the people he killed, but closer inspections show that he had just been let go as a teacher and gripped by failure and depression took his own life. Also, there are many holes in Constable McNachton's notes like him listing Druitt as a doctor, which his family were, but not he, and also listing him as 41 years old, when he was actually only 31, to name but a few of the errors. So for me, this just doesn't add up. John Pitzer was a local Jewish bootmaker and was another main suspect brought in for intense interrogation. He was well known in the area for his temper and most notably wearing a stained leather apron. This is where one of the many nicknames for Jack the Ripper comes from. John Pitzer, Leather Apron. Prostitutes feared Pitzer as he regularly assaulted them and was also rumoured to have an extortion racket going too. On September 10th, Sergeant William Thick arrested Pitzer for minor assaults on three different prostitutes, but during questioning, it was brought to light that Mr. Pitzer had a rock-solid alibi for at least two of the murders. This, and the fact that it was mainly locals who suspected him with no evidence, was reason enough to let him go and take him off the list of suspects. 
Thomas Hayne Cutbush was 22 years old and studying medicine in London in 1888. He was a young man raised by only his mother and aunt. He was believed to resent women and was hospitalised with syphilis. Thinking that doctors were poisoning him rather than curing him, he escaped the hospital and shortly after this stabbed a woman in the arse and tried to attack a second woman. In the same memorandums released by McNachton, he refuted the fact that Cutbush was a suspect, instead putting forward his own suspects. It came out that McNachton possibly did this because Cutbush's uncle was superintendent of the Metropolitan Police, and this would save face for him. The main reasons for Thomas Hayne Cutbush being a suspect was the fact that he lived so close to the murders, and by many was described as a person who was violently insane. And finally, Francis Tumblety. Francis Tumblety was an eccentric Irish-born American who for many years posed as an Indian herb doctor. He was arrested on the 7th of November for gross indecency and assault. This being why many initially thought he could not be the Ripper. However, he posted bail on the 8th and was free to walk around London until his next hearing on the 14th of November, leaving him free to murder Mary Jane Kelly. When he was re-arrested for court, he posted bail a second time, but this time he fled to France after posting bail and then onwards to the US. A few reasons why he was the main suspect. Well, his known hatred of women. His wife worked as a prostitute while they were married. He had medical and anatomical knowledge. He ran away after posting bail. He matches the descriptions given by the witnesses. And guess what he collected? Body parts, including wombs and uteruses kept in jars. He also moved to London for a year in May 1888, the same time of the first Ripper victim. Was he the Ripper of Whitechapel? The case of Jack the Ripper has baffled the police, detectives, researchers and armchair detectives for 120 years. There is no definite answer. Many books have been written on the subject and they all have their own favourite suspect, fitting in the evidence where they seem fit, like a jigsaw. But the fact of the matter is, we don't know. And at this stage, it's safe to say we'll probably never really know who Jack the Ripper really was. His legend lives on, and the mystery still grips us to this day, with the question still being asked, who was Jack the Ripper? Again, I just want to say a huge thank you for everyone that's listened, everyone that follows on Spotify, anyone that listens on SoundCloud, follows on Instagram. Um, it's just, it's amazing. I just want to say a big, huge thank you to you all. The website is finally up and running now, www.10podcastlane.com. All the links are there. We'll have merchandise up soon and it's looking fantastic. So please visit that also. Um, hopefully we'll be up on iTunes soon and I recently just got it up on Stitcher so if that's where you listen to podcasts you can subscribe there also and um, for this episode of 10 Podcast Lane I just want to say thank you again 
And until next time, aim for the bushes.